Jeff, can you please be seated? Thank you. Man. Well, good morning. My name is Monty for uh, guests here. I'm one of the teaching pastors. Jeff Pat Patton is our other. And uh, it's a joy to be worshiping with you today. And, uh, you know, Jeff and I would love for you guys to think that we are just so smart. We just plan everything out in the greatest of details. Most of the time, we're surprised. So here we are finishing up a series about overcoming self-rule and we're singing about the kingship of God and uh, declaring that out of First Chronicles. And it just happens to be Palm Sunday when Jesus, right, enters into the city and the whole city rolls out. They're celebrating uh, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, shouting Hosanna, right? They're, they're thinking this is the Davidic king we've been waiting for. And isn't it amazing in, in a very short period of time, those same people who were declaring him king were yelling, crucify him. So it's possible for all of us to be a little bit confused about what it actually means for Jesus to be king, isn't it? And depending on the circumstances of life, we can find ourselves in places where we actually believe, if, if, whether we're conscious of it or not, we believe that we would actually do a better job ruling over our life than Jesus would. So I'm going to start with a hard question this morning, but I hope by the end of this message, you will be incredibly encouraged and well-equipped to deal with this dilemma of every one of our hearts. So here it is. Who is on the throne of your life? Now, we've been singing some great stuff this morning. I, part of why the Lord told his people to gather together is to declare those things for our own benefit. <laughs> like we're singing praise to God, but we're reminding each other of what's true, what's right, what is reality regardless of our experience and our circumstances. But you know what? We're all going to walk out these doors this morning, and then we're going to go back into another week on Monday, and we're going to kind of plod through this next week, and somebody is going to rule over your life. And really, at the end of the day, there's two options. It is you or God. So who's on the throne? Who's sitting in that seat that we've been looking at week after week as we've been going through here? Who has ultimate authority over you? Now, if you say, well, God does, then I'm going to ask you another question. What does that actually mean? Because it's one thing to say God has authority over my life. It's another thing to, for me to follow you around for a week and see that actually play out in how you live. And I can tell you that your life will be different. <laughs> two strands here. One is you in control and one's God in control. And those two lives are different. 
observably different. Self-rule is our default. It started in the garden and it has carried out through all of history. So how do we make sure we don't fall victim to self-rule? Because it is absolutely destructive for us and everybody around us. How do we do that? This passage that we're in today as we wrap up this segment in chapters 8 through 10 is about as good as you'll find to help you guard against a heart that is prone to self-rule. An inclination in us to believe that we can do a better job than God uh, governing over our lives. Now, the reason that Paul's instructions here are so helpful and so clear is because they actually amplify uh, some things that Jesus said during his earthly ministry. So that's where we're going to start and this is really the law of love, okay? So we know that Israel had the Mosaic law and all that we find through the Old Testament and all of that story as it unfolded, but we come to Christ and things really begin to, to get some clarity, particularly around him. So here's another scenario. We've heard of these. They happen all through the gospels, but Jesus is surrounded uh, by a lot of folks, but particularly a lot of religious leaders, right? The smart guys of the day that have an answer for everything. And uh, they begin to come to Jesus, not to learn from him, but to test him, to try and trip him up, to expose him as a fraud. And here's the scene. It's in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, so the Sadducees came in, they tried to trip Jesus up, they failed utterly, so now here come the Pharisees. They gathered together around him, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Essentially, all of you. This is the great and first commandment, but there's a second. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So, it, it does seem to make it kind of simple. If you want to live life the way God intended, you can really whittle it down to two things. You need to love God, and you need to love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. And again, if I ask you the question, what do you think about that? It, does, that sound, does that sound good to you? Is that how you generally try to live your life? We might all say, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I love God. And I love my neighbor. I mean, I'm nice to people. I'm courteous. I even do nice stuff for people sometimes. But, but you know, Christianity, we, we live in these 
gross generalities without getting down into the specifics of what does it mean. Remember the question I asked you earlier, what would it really look like if you loved God with all of you? And if you loved your neighbor, not just to be nice, but you actually loved them the way you love yourself. So these aren't just two huge boxes that we just check because we're Christians. It's like, no, this is really how you live. We're, we're getting down to the very essence of how we live. And those two, those two things are like headers over these gigantic categories that beg you and I to dive in, to immerse ourselves and to explore how, how could I possibly love God with all of me and love my neighbor as myself for the rest of my days until I go to be with him? That's the question that those two commands beg us to answer. And those two commands really provide two safeguards that Paul is going to get, get into into this passage, helping us avoid the downfall of self-rule. So let's look at the first safeguard. This is going to begin in verse 23 of chapter 10. And this is going to fall under the commandment header of love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm going to do something this morning. We don't always do this, but I, I want to really kind of dig down a little deeper into this passage. A lot of times Jeff and I will study 15, sometimes 20 hours in a week in a passage and then what you get on Sunday morning in 30 to 35 minutes is really what we have distilled out from all of that time. So I want to kind of break it down a little bit together to, to sort of model for how you might approach this passage. So we come to verse 23 in 1 Corinthians. And this is going to sound familiar because we heard these same words almost exactly in chapter 6. So Paul is repeating himself, and he starts with this statement, all things are lawful. And you may remember from chapter 6 that um, that represented something the Corinthians were saying to him, and what he was doing was trying to correct that. They were saying all things are lawful. As, to me, literally, we can do anything we want to, but it can't mean that. It has to fit into what God says is lawful. Again, if he is the ruler. So let's look at this statement. All things are lawful. Well, all things must mean things that are not prohibited by the law of Christ. So now we're starting to narrow the category down a little bit. So we're, we're talking about everything that is permissible according to the scriptures. All things are lawful. What does lawful mean? Well, that means morally neutral and allowable. Essentially, that means that as far as the scriptures are concerned, you're free to do it or not do it. So you have some ability there to decide. But does it mean that just because you can do something, you should do something? Well, no, 
Because there's a lot of other factors that we need to take into consideration if we're gonna love our neighbor as ourselves. So he continues to help us think about, he got a big but in there, but all things are lawful, but, which means you don't have autonomy. You don't just get to do as you please. You now have a, a filter to help you think about what you should do and when you should do it. So he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now I put into the slide there, those things. So again, now we're pointing back to all things which aren't literally everything that you could do, but only those things that aren't prohibited by scripture. So all of those things, not all of those things are helpful. Not all of those things build up. Now, what do those two words mean? Helpful and build up. Well, helpful literally means beneficial, useful, advantageous. What we're gonna find out is Paul's not talking about beneficial, useful, or advantageous for you. Because remember, we're trying to follow the law of love, which means we love our neighbor like ourselves, And we love benefits. We love advantages. We love those things that are useful for us. So we're supposed to take into consideration our neighbor and how doing whatever it is that's lawful might be good for them. Not only that, not all those things build up. That word means to strengthen or to edify. Now, this is where it gets fun because we get a little dilemma here. Uh, we're gonna have a, a, a tension between edification and self-indulgence. Edification and self-indulgence. I don't need to explain what self-indulgence is to you, right? We do that as natural as breathing. So we're gonna focus in on this idea of edification. That comes from the Greek word oikos, which is, literally means house. So we have a construction word here, the idea of actually building something. And as we get to the Greek word that's used here, it's literally building up a house or a family, figuratively speaking. So not all things that are allowable according to the law of Christ and the law of love actually build up my neighbor, my church, or anybody else that I might come into contact with along my way. How many of you have played the game Jenga? A few of you? Okay, well, just for sake of clarity, I'll explain. This is my model here, my Jenga model. I, I hear they have life-size Jenga. That might be a little dangerous if it fell on me and I'd be injured on stage and not be able to finish. So we're gonna work with this little one here, but here's the way Jenga works. Whoever's playing, uh, they take turns pulling pieces. Whoa, that was close. Pulling pieces out and then just placing them on top. And so they just keep on doing that, building up the tower and uh, hopefully not knocking anything down. The person that wins is the last person to pull a piece out 
without toppling the tower. So there's a winner and there's a loser. And the whole point is to get your pieces out and put them on top at the expense of your competitor. Now, unfortunately, that's the way a lot of people approach building the church or even building their neighbor. So what we do is we pull these pieces out, kind of looking strategically for where it might work for our advantage, and we put it on top for the sake of our ego, and we're just hoping that the tower doesn't topple on our turn. We're hoping that somebody else will do the same and it'll fall down on them. And they'll lose and we'll win. But you know, in the church, if the, if the tower ever topples, we all lose. The church loses, the mission loses. We don't end up accomplishing what God intended for his people. Now, here's a different way to think about playing Jenga. Every single one of us is given, I wish I had a little bag, but a bag of these pieces. And so here's the deal. We don't ever have to pull pieces out from the bottom and destabilize the tower because the Lord provides these pieces. There are gifts, our strengths, our story, our experience. And here's what we get to do. We all get to place these pieces. We might even see a gap that we can fill in. But we're all doing it to, to stabilize the foundation and build the tower as tall as God will allow. All to the glory of God for the good of his people and the advancement of his mission. That's how God intends for building edification to take place. And our sacrifice is simply to take what God has given to us. We didn't come up with it. We didn't create our own, our own Jenga pieces. They were given to us. And our sacrifice, if that's, if that's what we want to call it, is simply to take what God's given to us and put it in there for the good of the body. It is to edify so Paul says in verse 24, and this is our first safeguard from Paul's perspective, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Practically speaking, we're to aim at spiritually reinforcing the hearts of the people that are around us, regardless of where they might be in their process of growth and change. Now, Paul's going to give us an illustration that he honestly has been developing over the course of these three chapters. So throughout 8 through 10, there's this issue. The issue has been meat that is sacrificed to idols in the context of secular pagan worship. So the way it works is you sacrifice an animal as part of a secular religious ceremony, and then that animal, 
the meat of that animal is then served up in the context of a meal. So as Jeff talked about last week, all of that goes together. You can't separate it out. And the Corinthians were trying to figure out, I mean, we've been around this, perhaps doing it our whole lives, and now you're saying that um, we're free to eat meat, but we're not free to eat it in certain places. So how does all that work out? So Paul addresses it in verses 25 through 29, and he gives us three tables. So it's all related to meat, but it's different places where that meat is offered. So we're just gonna work through these three tables. The first is a pagan temple table. So that's out in the community, and they were everywhere, very common. Sort of everybody went to temple and participated in the sacrifices and then shared a meal together. The market table was just simply going to market and they would have meat for sale and you could go up and you could buy that meat. The catch was it might have been meat that had been offered as a sacrifice in one of those temples and how could you know? So that's a dilemma. And then the last is a neighbor's table, particularly an unbelieving neighbor that might invite you over for dinner. And they invite you over and they serve up some meat. And the Corinthians are going, what do I do with that? So he's going to give us very specific instructions about each of those things. I'll start with the pagan temple table because this is really the takeaway that Jeff gave us last week, so we won't go back. But this is verses 14 through 22, and he basically said, by going to the temple and, and eating the meat there, you would sit down at the table with others who are actively worshiping pagan gods. To join with them is to join into idolatry. You may say, man, I just love the burgers here. But, but that's not going to cut it because sitting down and eating that burger with those folks is to join them in worshiping demons. So Paul says, avoid idolatry, flee it, run away as fast as you can, and don't ever go into that place. The proximity of that meal means it's prohibited. You're not allowed to go there. Okay, so that's the, the pagan temple table. Now, now we get to the market. I'm gonna pick up in uh, verse 25. Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's quoting Psalm 24, 1. So what he's saying here is when you're out in the market, you're out in a public place, there's no worship taking place there. It's just like you got fruits, you got vegetables, whatever else they serve at the market, and then there's meat. And his instructions are you can go up and you can just buy it. And you don't need to ask where this meat came from unless you're worried about getting sick or something. Like, is this meat rotten? Is this cat or, you know, what, what do we got here? Um, you're just literally to go up and just buy your meat. And then you can take it home and you can eat it 
completely freely. Just don't even give it another thought. Why? Because everything that is in the earth that we might eat is the Lord's. You're not going to violate yourself or the Lord in any way by eating that meat. So don't ask, eat freely. That's the application for the market table. Then the last one is a little more complicated. This is the neighbor's table. He specifies that this is an unbelieving neighbor. Pick up in uh, verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been, this meat has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Let me stop there for a second. So the scenario is an unbeliever invites you over for dinner. And Paul is saying, similar to the market, you can say, sure, I'd love to come over for some burgers. And when you sit down, if they serve it up, eat it up. Enjoy that opportunity to connect. Man, you might have opportunity to share your faith to have a spiritual conversation, right? We, we want to engage unbelievers where we can. And wow, what an awesome opportunity for an unbeliever to invite you over for dinner. So do that and eat what's in front of you and do it with thanksgiving. Then there's an asterisk. However, if the host, and the, the passage is really unclear, it could be the host or it could be another guest that's there with you. And it's two different scenarios. But if either of them say, hey, by the way, that burger, <laughs> that was in the temple downtown earlier today, then his instructions are you should refrain from that. Not because you're not free to eat meat. Remember we just, Psalm 24, one, you're free. But because of the conscience of either the host or another guest. Now, for the host, if they're an unbeliever, they don't care about meat sacrificed to idols, right? So why would they tell you, hey, by the way, just want to let you know that's been sacrificed to idols? Probably because they know you're a Christian and they think you probably have some feelings about eating meat sacrificed to idols because you're a Christ follower. So what you don't wanna do is confuse the unbeliever about your allegiances. And so you can just respectfully just decline. No thanks, appreciate it, looks great, I'm just gonna pass. It could be that there's another guest there that informs you. And it's, commentators will say that that's probably a weaker brother or sister. See, they're sitting there and maybe they know that that meat was sacrificed to idols and they, they just don't have the freedom in their own way of thinking to eat that, particularly in the home of an unbeliever. Like they've got all these bells and whistles going off. They're really concerned. So then we apply the law of love to the weaker brother and we say, I'm not gonna do anything to cause my brother or sister to stumble, so I'm gonna decline in that way as well. But those are two different scenarios. Either way, 
I am setting my liberty aside for the good of my neighbor. I'm considering them more important than myself. If I am on the throne of my life, then I do what I want. And I consider my freedom to be my right. And I demand that. I'm entitled to that. Do you see how that works? Paul is saying, no, if if the Lord is on the throne of your life, then you will literally go without just about anything in order to remove any kind of obstacle to those who are around you, your neighbor, because you wanna give them an opportunity to respond to Christ. I thought about some potential application. Um, Alcohol is one of those things that um, there are clear outlines in the scriptures about drunkenness is prohibited, but it doesn't say don't drink. But as you can imagine, being around a whole lot of people who have all kinds of different stories and experiences, that might be a good thing to be sensitive to, don't you think? Perhaps modesty. You know, you might feel perfectly comfortable dressing in a particular way, but, but how you dress might have some effect on the people around you. How you use social media Like you might feel super comfortable behind the keyboard, firing away thoughts and opinions and all that. But what about your neighbor who's reading that? Are you giving consideration to not only what you say, but how you say it? And would you set aside your quote freedom in order to love your neighbor well? Material possessions. I know I'm probably getting a little touchy here, I'm not saying you can't have nice things, but, but what we're trying to get at is, do you even ask the question about what you buy and how that might reflect in the vision of other people? Do you even ask the question? I think if you're ruled by God, you do ask that question. You do take your neighbor into consideration, not to mention stewardship and a lot of other things. So again, I said earlier, just because we can do something, just because something is lawful doesn't mean it's helpful or that it builds up our neighbor. Now, just as a very, very quick aside, verses 29b through 30, (laughs) it sort of sounds like Paul lost his mind for a second. Like he's making this big argument and then he just takes a hard right turn. He just says, for why should my liberty be determined by somebody else's conscience? It sort of sounds like, why should I care what's wrong with my neighbor? Verse 30, if I partake with thanksgiving, thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which I give thanks? So as long as I say thanks for what I'm doing, You know, why don't I just get to do it? So it sounds like he's contradicting himself. And commentators are all over the map on this. uh, Just jot this down. 2 Peter 3.16, 
Peter is talking about stuff that Paul wrote. And he said, there are some things in his letters that are hard to understand. This had to be one of those places, no doubt about it. The best explanation, and, and this makes sense to me, I think what Paul is getting at is he's distinguish, distinguishing between consideration and conviction. So, in terms of consideration, I set aside my freedom. I don't take my liberty at the expense of someone else. But I do not change my conviction about that being freedom just because somebody else doesn't get it yet. So he, all he's saying here is, I still believe I am absolutely free to do whatever it is that I am scripturally free to do. That's not gonna change. But I will choose to set that aside if it is beneficial for the good of my neighbor. That's my best shot at 29B through 30. Let's look at safeguard number two. Okay, this is gonna fall under the big category of love the Lord your God with all of you. Here's what Paul says in verse 31. So, now listen carefully to this. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How about let's say that together? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I, you know what? I feel like we need to do that one more time. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There may not be many verses more important for you to memorize than that one. And we just got a good start this morning. Say that to yourself about 50 times this week and you'll get it. What a great guiding principle for life. And here's what it says. There is nothing so mundane in my life that I shouldn't consider whether or not doing it will glorify God. Something as simple as eating and drinking. Now, the, we usually think about the huge, big things, life decisions and huge purchases and all that kind of stuff. Paul is saying there's no off limits here. We ought to always be asking, considering, praying, seeking counsel. Is what I am considering doing glorifying to God? Will it magnify my ruler. And if not, I won't do it. I'm just going to settle it because more than anything in the world, I want to make much of him who has been so kind to me. Paul continues in verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone, Paul says, in everything I do, and just as an aside, that's, he's not a man pleaser. Look in Galatians, he's not, he's not trying to make everybody happy. He's not codependent. He's not okay if everybody else is okay. He's just saying, as he's been saying all throughout this series, 
I am trying to make sure that I don't introduce obstacles to people in their pursuit of God that are unnecessary. I'm trying to clear all that stuff out of the way because the gospel is as offensive to the human heart as anything. Because here's what it says. You can't rule yourself. In fact, if it's up to you, you will destroy your life. That's what the gospel says. But it also says, Jesus Christ will do for you what you can't do for yourself. He'll give you eternal life. He'll give you abundant life. He'll give you a better life than you could ever even conceive of on your own. That's the gospel. And that's what we want people to have to deal with. That's what I need to deal with on a daily basis. I need to remember that so that I stay off the throne. Paul says, strive to magnify God. Avoid carelessly stepping on others' cultural toes. Be attentive and considerate to the needs of others so that all who come into contact with you might take a step of faith toward God. All right, let me wrap up with this. Paul concludes with a very challenging charge for all of us. This is uh, chapter 11, verse one. It, it really does connect with chapter 10. It, it doesn't so much introduce uh, chapter 11, although it can, but it really goes better with this passage. And he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Man, that's pretty stout. I wonder if you would feel comfortable saying that to your neighbor. Hey, I don't do it perfectly, but listen, I am following hard after God. I, I really am trying to love God with all my heart and soul, mind and strength. And I'm really trying by God's grace to love my neighbor as myself. That orders my life. I'm not on the throne. And if you want to know what it's like to follow God, follow me. Now, here's what's so amazing about Paul saying that. Do you know his story? He was a murderer. He was a legalistic Pharisee. He was arrogant beyond imagination. God had to literally strike him down and blind to get his attention. And so I kind of think as he says that, somewhere in there is, is him saying, listen, if God can do that with me, he can do it with you. He can make you someone that others can imitate in terms of following Christ. Do you believe that? I truly hope that you do. Because if you don't, I don't believe that you will step out by faith in the way that God intended. Because you know what? When you invite others to imitate you, it's on. <laughs> Man, that'll get your attention. I remember, Jeff and I have talked about this a hundred times, that the first Bible study I ever led, it was terrifying. <laughs> because I thought, these guys are actually sitting around in a circle 
and they're going to listen to me. That's frightening. But I'm just going to try and give away what was given to me and trust that the Lord can use that as broken and frail and flawed as it might be. And the Lord did. And he's done it again and again and again. Honestly, this is the bedrock of discipleship. That's really all it is. It, just jot down 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you have four generations here. Paul entrusting the truth of Christ to Timothy. And Timothy is supposed to entrust that very same thing to his disciples, his Christ followers that are imitating him. But they're actually, like Paul's already thinking about those that you're investing in, you ought to be thinking about the ones that they're going to invest in for generations. That's discipleship. And I tell you what, over the coming months, we're going to be asking the question with each other, men, where are your men? Ladies, where are your women? Do you have a Paul in your life who's pouring into you? Do you have a Barnabas, somebody that's shoulder to shoulder with you that you're walking through life with? They know you, you know them, you love each other and you're, you're striving together. And do you have a Timothy that you are simply giving away what has been given to you? We're gonna ask that. And I can tell you this, there's no better way to live and to cultivate those relationships. Who is on the throne of your life? Here's two safeguards to help you and me guard our hearts against self-rule. So where in the midst of Paul's instructions, his encouragements, his challenges, where do you need to respond today? What would be a next right step for you to, to better place yourself under the rulership of Christ? Take a moment, prayerfully ask God to, to guide you in that question the Holy Spirit is committed to guiding you into all truth. So ask him, ask him to help you see where you need to make application.